The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. For the past few years, the abuse and harassment of women has become a hot-button political and social issue. But despite many people's increased awareness, these have been matters that too many women have always been painfully aware of. The fact that their voices and stories are increasingly being listened to and affirmed is more a reflection of the need for the rest of us to listen and to change. But not so long ago, the physical and mental abuse of women was something relegated to the shadows. The blame was often levied on the women for taking the abuse or simply choosing not to leave. It was an attitude that extended to law enforcement, who for the longest time saw such abuse as a personal matter that was best resolved by the people involved rather than by the law. The shift in public and political attitudes was aided by the work of today's guest, Donna Ferrato, whose photographs and book, Living with the Enemy, revealed the dark and dangerous world of domestic abuse. The images were shocking and heartbreaking, but they helped to shift public attitudes and law's approach to such violence. Decades later, Donna's work continues to challenge both viewer and photographer alike. Please note that this conversation features frank discussions about violence and sexuality that might not be suitable for all listeners. Thank you so much, Donna. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. This is just a perfect uh, coincidence that I could be here. And it's we have Eddie to thank, really. Yeah, thank you, Eddie, for yeah. making this happen. I, I always like being able to do it in person, face-to-face. I think the dynamic yeah. is so much better than, than doing it over Skype or the computer. Yeah, I agree. Um, I have to tell you, I've been a fan of your work since I was in college. I remember seeing your book and your work the very first time, and it was just amazing, amazing stuff. What did you think? What did uh, you think? Like, it was, it, it what was, did you think of this woman who does things <laughs> like that? Did, did you think she was a pain in the ass? You know, I didn't know what to think of you as a per- person, whether you were a pain in the ass. It, it, was, it was the fact that you were diving in deeper than I had seen other photographers do. And it wasn't just the fact that you were exploring the subject of, you know, um, of abuse. It was, it was just the fact that you could... I, it, it amazed me that someone could gain as much trust as you obviously did to make the photographs that you did. And for me, that was kind of revelatory because I'd never had thought of photography in those terms. I mean, I'd looked at a lot of photojournalism, but a lot of that work, as remarkable as, as it is, was often involved photographers having some distance between them and their subjects. You never had a sense that there was a, a, a relationship between the photographer and the people that were photographing. And when I looked at your work, that had to be part and parcel of what you were doing. So that even that though they me, weren't my friends, because I yeah. think when Nan came along, she kind of opened people mm-hmm. up to the idea that a photographer could have a tribe. 
and could have all these friends that are pretty crazy and wild and fun right. and 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 then be photographing all of that and as she always said she wasn't an outsider and you're speaking of nan golden for people who don't exactly know. you know her work was pivotal and so brave and she was right there at the time but that in a way i i wanted to see and show the people who i did not know their lives in a very up close way like Nan or other photographers had done Larry Clark you know this way very inside and with them but they're not my buddies they're not these none of these people are my pals that I hang out with and do drugs with and get high with and none of that stuff it was I always made it very clear that I was a photographer Mm -hmm. number one that I was there to take pictures and to tell their story but of course I wanted to be in their lives as much as they would allow me because I knew that was the only way I could get to the true essence of who they are. When I read about your life, I think it's really kind of interesting because you, when I see like your early years of your life when you were married and you were helping your well, I husband, wasn't. Oh, the ma- which one? The first one, like the in lawyer? San Francisco? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I feel like, oh, that's sort of a traditional life choice. Yeah. And I see sort of where you've taken it. And you've talked about the fact that at some point you realized, even after you you had supported your, um, was it your husband? Uh-huh, okay. yeah. Who, to My the first point, love. Yeah. Big love. I loved him to death. Yeah. yeah. And at some point you said you realized that you didn't want to be a lawyer's wife. And, and I wonder about the, the moments where you kind of realized that the choices that you've made that are largely, it seems like so many of the choices that we make in terms of who we love and the kind of lives we lead are, are a part of societal norms of what you're sort of expected to do. And a lot of people have a hard time sort of rebelling against that or making an alternative choice, even if they feel like it would make them happier. And I'm kind of wondering at that point in your life, when did you realize that you wanted something more or, or something different? And how did you start trying to figure out what that would be? I realized that I wanted something more after I left my husband because I realized it just didn't satisfy me enough to be in a traditional relationship, um, married, maybe going to have children soon. My husband was going to become an incredible lawyer. He's working for Melvin Bella. I knew he was going to make money. We're living in a big house. That's when I realized I didn't want any of that. I've always liked the struggle, the challenges. You know, I always want to see what's what's really happening. So then, when I got a camera and I left him, it it was really so I could wander with my camera. And Mm -hmm. that's when I realized that there was a, a, a whole other way for a wayward woman like I was. Like, I'm not going to settle down in any home with a husband and have the 2.1 babies Mm -hmm. and, you know, two cars and all. I just wasn't going to do it. And, And so the camera was what really helped me to to break away from all the traditions and the norms and to try to do things my way yeah. you know no money I didn't have a job I didn't go to I went to the San Francisco Art Institute for about six months I took a sociology and photography course from him and 
This was the man who sort of opened my eyes to Howard Becker. Howard Becker Becker was my teacher. Howard Becker opened my eyes to everything. It was at the Art Institute. Um, We would do a lot of field trips with him. We would go to Monterey, you know, in a car with the students. And we would meet people like uh, Weston, Um, not Edward Weston, but his son. And... And you know, go out to the dunes and be posing naked and just being free. Seeing how you know Weston would work in his dark room and how obsessive he was, and look at his prints and and then going back to San Francisco, documenting the different neighborhoods that we felt a part of and the friendships that were formed during that those years. This was 1976. Are still. Those people are still very strong in my life. I mean, I've never had a chance to find Howard Becker again and thank him for what he did. Mm. But he he truly changed my life and turned me into the photographer that I am today. You started documenting uh, swingers in New York, uh, largely around Plato's retreat. But what led up to that from going from sort of exploring photography sort of as general subject matter to realizing that you really wanted to do something more than what most photographers do, that you really wanted to sort of immerse yourself in other people's lives. Honestly, I didn't even know what other photographers do. I had no idea. I wasn't, I had no comparison to make. I didn't understand the history of photography. They didn't teach it in the courses that I took at San Francisco Art Institute I didn't know so all I knew was that it was a way to tell stories and I really wanted to be involved with people and I also felt like a failure because I couldn't really buy the dream of marrying the man you love and you have a nice house and you have babies together and he works and you get a nice little job that sort of you know makes you feel better and maybe you do some some charity work and all of that that I I just you know I have my dad has always called me Donna Quixote <laughs> always because he saw that I I was always kind of out there from high school just like waving you know trying to knock things down that I didn't like or, and I wanted to change and so when I realized that I was a terrible woman because I couldn't be faithful, that sort of, uh, that that became a crusade for me too, was to try to understand with my camera how other women make a marriage work. How do mm. men and women actually stay in it for years and years and not get bored? Because to me it got, even though I loved this man so much, it got predictable. Yeah. And and so and so that's how I got into the swinging, because when I got back to New York City after living in Paris and Brussels for almost two years, um, it was like like a tidal wave of like sexual freedom and and people just like shedding their clothes and their inhibitions and um, all those traditional ideas and. And uh, going to clubs with each other and having parties in their homes. And, you know, and I, I didn't have anybody that I could do that with. And I didn't even know if I could do that because as the daughter of a father who was a, a thoracic surgeon and a mother who was a, a surgical nurse, 
I I couldn't just go and lie in some orgy room and let all kinds of men have me and do anything they want with me. And I, I never felt like that kind of a woman either, even though I admire the women who can do that. But personally, I can't. I think about too many things, and I don't really want a man inside of me that I don't know who he is. I don't know his character. I don't know the quality of this man. So that's always been very clear to me, what my own personal boundaries are and standards and expectations from sexuality and a relationship. But I like it. I like that other women don't have those fears and are really sexually unhinged. You know, yeah. I, I, I truly admire that. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because I, I, when I looked at, at the work, I was wondering how much of that was an exploration of yourself, trying to understand who you were as a woman, as an independent human being, not just in terms of your sexuality, but in terms of your identity, especially when you had come up during a time which was, you know, fairly conservative, fairly traditional. And yet here you are in the 60s and the 70s in a time where everyone is sort of thinking about themselves and their lives in a much more liberated way. But but you're still having to sort of search for what those answers are for mm-hmm. yourself, and, and it I seems like no, you're able to do it. I had no role models. I yeah. really, and I, I wasn't part of any art group. You know, a lot of when you're in an art group and you're doing all these performances and you're meeting a lot of other great uh, artists with female artists, and they're, you know, all like shaking things up in the world and do. But I didn't know any of those women either. I wasn't in any art group. I was much more political. Mm-hmm. And um, really felt the the importance of women being treated equally, and uh, I didn't think about domestic violence in those days. I knew a lot of women were often raped or killed or something like that, but I didn't connect it to domestic violence. I really didn't have much of a, a background. I had no history in my family. You know, my father was a a lover man, but he was not an abuser. And there were stories that maybe my grandpa was pretty abusive with my grandmother. And, you know, the very first time she got pregnant, they had a fight and he pushed her down the stairs and she had a miscarriage. So I knew that those things happened, but I also knew I was the firstborn in the whole family, very big Italian family. Mm -hmm. And... And so I know the whole history of everybody in my family, all the uncles and the aunts and the kids and my grandparents, and I spent the most time with my grandparents. So I also know that my grandmother was very cold. She never wanted to have sex. She wanted to be a nun. And I saw my grandpa was really the one that I adored so much, and he made me laugh, and he was a hard worker, and he was really kind to me and and loving and he was but with my grandma he he did tease her a lot and she was very religious she would just sit there all day praying on her rosary when she wasn't making the pastas and you know baking the bread the sugo and uh, putting it all together you know she was praying and she thought we were all sinners and Mm -hmm. we were all going to go to hell and I didn't, you know, I just could never buy into that whole religious, you know, that 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 yoke around the neck yeah. that religion 
puts on every human who buys into it. My mother was religious too. My father was not. So I more followed the men, you know, my grandfather and my father, and being a libertarian, and being open and curious and having fun with people. And my father was a healer, a heart, a healer of the heart. Um, I guess I kind of felt as I started to photograph more and more that I could I could make a bridge um, between people in their families where I was living because my method was always to sit and listen and be part of whatever a man and a woman were going through. Not just photographing, sometimes recording, sometimes giving my opinions, talking to them back and forth, listening to both sides. And so, in a way, I was like a sounding board for a lot of women in those days who mm -hmm. really couldn't speak up with the husband. They didn't even know how to. There was always a lot of sadness in homes where I would go in the relationships, both in Paris and in Belgium. This is where I started to be very curious about what what are all the you know what the backstories of these relationships that I'm being able to see because in those days in the seventies before I went back to New York, I was um, a vagabond. So if if people would say you can sleep on my sofa and take care of my kids and in return you have a place to live and you can go around and take your pictures that's that's how I would that, w that was my school mm -hmm. was being in people's lives and helping them um, while I would just keep taking pictures yeah two of the people that you met uh, as a result of doing your your photography of the swingers scene in New York was the couple that you that eventually changed your career uh, and it was the first time you had witnessed spousal abuse. Yeah. Tell me about how you came to photograph that, that couple and about that evening in which you photographed him abusing his wife. <clears throat> I have the whole evening of when we first met in pictures, you know, on my contact sheets, on negatives, back in the house. It's quite amazing because I was going to Plato's retreat two or three nights a month with my fellow journalists, a guy named Philip Noble, who was the intelligencer at New York Magazine, a guy named Peter, Peter Meyer, who was a writer at Life Magazine, Harry Stein, whose father wrote Fiddle on the Roof, and Harry's mm. a big-time writer. So I was the crazy girl, and I was photographing people like Jerzy Kosinski. I was also, I had gotten a job as a, the uh, staff photographer for... Media People magazine. So they were sending me out with Gay Talese, who had just written Thy Neighbor's Life, Jerzy Kosinski, all of these crazy writers in those days. And so I would go into their houses and really get to know them. And, uh, you know, and as you can probably guess, I'm a bit of a snoop. And I will go very far into people's lives as far as they will let me. Jerzy Kosinski was very curious as we as I was photographing him because I like to talk to my subjects, and he and I would talk to him about going to clubs like Hellfire Club and Plato's Retreat, and so he was fascinated with this and he would tell me how he got his stories you know by drilling holes into walls where private orgies were going on and watching, 
And and he would always say, anytime you want to go to any of these places anywhere in the world, I'll take you. And Gaitelis was another one. Oh, God, I have an incredible story with both of these men that I probably can't go into right now because they're too explosive. Mm. But I am not the kind of photographer who is going to sit. If a man, like let's say a man like Gaitelis, if he wants to... If he's saying he's uncomfortable with me because I'm, he has a little bit of an attraction to me, so he can't really relax and be himself while I'm photographing him, he has to masturbate. I say, go ahead. <laughs> masturbate. I don't care. And he says, do you want to watch? Of course. You can't take pictures? Of course. I don't care. And then everything is fine. He masturbates, everything is fine. So here I was as a young photographer, you know, just feeling my way around, never judging anybody. I'm not a little prima donna, you know, never have been. I'm a very open-minded donna. So, you know, I would go to these places. Everything was happening. Jersey Kosinski, we met each other several times. I would see him coming into Plato's Retreat. All my friends would go there with me, but then I would always want to wander off. And, and really spend time in my own way with, with these swingers. And so the night that I met Banked and Elizabeth, um, I was blown away at how powerful and beautiful they were, how they kind of stood above the sort of New Jersey crowd of swingers. They were Swedish. They were really beautiful clothes, were very elegant. Um, she was always dressed in, in in a much more Vogue or Harper's Bazaar kind of way compared mm. to the others. The other women were there just for sex. She was there because her husband was pushing her into it. And she found that it could please him if she did certain things that would make him happy. He wouldn't let her go home until she basically had had sex with whoever he wanted her to have sex with. But she didn't even understand this as abuse at that time. So she would never relate that to me. They always were very cool and sophisticated and glamorous. So I, as I photographed them in the club, I would say, can I take a picture of you here sitting at this table? Yes, of course. Can I photograph you walking in front of that sign over there? Plato's... Of course, in your fur coats and your fancy dandy man suit. Of course, everything was cool. Even in the orgy room. I photographed them in the orgy room, too, with other people. There, nobody was holding me back because I would get to know them, take normal pictures of them in the club. So I have that whole evening and a couple others on film. But then eventually... I started to sit, think that it would be more interesting to go home with them rather than just seeing them in the club. And I asked both the husband and wife if I could do that, and they said fine. They had nothing to hide. In fact, they were turning their home into a swinger's palace because Plato's Retreat was starting to be a problem for everybody, you know, and they were starting to have problems with income tax evasion and the you know, FBI. So... It was sort of moving the operation, and I couldn't even believe that a family that had six kids and lived in a house next to Richard Nixon and these people that you would never expect, I I wouldn't have never expected them to be swingers, Mm -hmm. could be so open even with their children. So, of course, I wanted to see that. And I was pregnant at the time. I was like six months pregnant when I started photographing in their house. And their friends at these orgies would often say, 
who, who is that woman with the camera? What is she doing in here? And they would say, oh, she's our friend, the pregnant photographer. Don't pay any attention to her. She's fine. She's, you know, you can trust her. So people just let me be there. That's all I want. You yeah. know that Jersey Kozinski line, being there? That's all I want. To me, that's the sacred open sesame thing. Yeah. Just, yeah, you can be here. The night that you photographed uh, the husband striking the, the wife was, well, they were, it wasn't just about sex. It was a lot of drug abuse that was happening at the time. And I guess and that she feels that it's, right now, she's feeling that he would have never done this if he hadn't been so much into coke. And she became an alcoholic. I mean, he was bringing her alcohol cocktails, uh, you know, as she went from room to room. I've tried to explain to her that, you know, a lot of people do drugs. A lot of people do cocaine. A lot of people drink. And they, it doesn't turn everybody into wife beaters mm -hmm. and child molesters. Not everybody goes down that path. Bank did. Bank did. Yeah. And he had everybody in that house under his thumb. To me, he was an abuser from day one, from when he first met her. The way he took her, she, she didn't even really want to go with him. She wasn't even attracted to him. But he knew back in Malmo, Sweden, he had to have her. She was the most extraordinary woman that he had ever seen. And she was a, a strong, independent woman. She, she thought she was going to have her life on her own. She'd left her husband. She had two daughters. She was ready to find her own way. But when Banks saw her, she was the woman for him. Yeah. And he would not, from the first night, he wouldn't let her go anywhere else. She had to be with him. So that night that I had actually pulled away from them after seeing a lot of stuff with the swinging, with kids, with the kids smashing things in the house that, I, you know, I just didn't like. I was still that little old-fashioned girl from Ohio, and I was feeling very uncomfortable, especially with children being brought into this avant-garde swinging lifestyle. And so after my daughter was born, I pretty much stopped talking to them. But um, a few months after Fanny was born, I got a call from Elizabeth, and she told me that she was terrified of him and that he was starting to make her feel like she was going crazy with the things he was doing. And she asked me to come to the house and just see what was going on and to tell her if she was crazy. So I said, sure, I'll come and I'll bring Fanny. You haven't met Fanny yet. I'll bring my little girl. We'll come and spend the night. So took a bus there. As soon as they opened the door, Elizabeth and Banked, I could see the ravages of the this like swinging life and the cocaine. The cocaine was, they were both so thin. They looked like cadavers. Their eyes just circles like raccoons, black circles. And as soon as I could, I pulled her aside and I said, "You, I think it's the cocaine. You got to stop with the cocaine. You have to." And I didn't expect her to do anything right then and there, but she. I thought they would go to help to get help together, but she hid the cocaine. And so throughout the day, suddenly he would appear very angry and tried to drag her in the house. I didn't know what was going on. The kids didn't know. She, the kids would cry. She would pull away. I would take a picture because that's what I do. And 
you know, that is what I do. I'm a photographer, and I'm really not ashamed of it, and I'm not going to stop just because something intense is happening that I don't understand. In fact, when I don't understand things, I photograph even more. He, he saw me photographing, and he left her alone. He went into the house, and that seemed pretty normal to me. He, why should he want to hurt her in front of me? I kind of felt like maybe everybody was safer with me being there. But then, and he disappeared for that day. But then that night, I, I hadn't seen him for the rest of the day. The rest of the day had gone fine. Lunch, dinner, playing with the kids, everything's good, we go to sleep. But in the middle of the night, I heard her screaming, bloody murder. So I put my daughter in the closet in her little basket because I knew he had a 357 Magnum. Grabbed my little Leica and went running down to their wing of the house. And that's where I saw the whole thing going, their whole life going to hell with him pushing her and demanding that she give back the drugs and her crying and saying she was trying to save their marriage. And I did what I do. Took a picture. Took another picture. But I had to conserve, too, because I didn't have a camera bag. Everything was back in the room, down the hall. Mm. I only had one roll of Triax, and I didn't know where any of this was going to go. When he hit her... I took that picture. That was the first thing that happened when I went into the bathroom because I figured, if I don't get this picture, no one will ever believe that it happened. And I was also thinking, he stopped before when I took his picture when he was trying to drag her into the house, so I thought it would make him stop, bring him to his senses. When he went to hit her again, I grabbed his arm and said, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to hurt her. And that's when he just threw me off like I was, you know, a piece of trash and said, look it. She's my wife, and I'm not going to hurt her. I know my own strength, but I have to prove to her that she can't get away with lying to me. So the blame was on her. To me, they were both, I couldn't, I couldn't follow any of it, and I just kept taking pictures slowly, deliberately, trying to avoid my reflection in the mirror. That was pretty horrifying. I didn't know what to do. Mirrors everywhere. This was really situation okay somebody might say well call the cops yeah she went to call the cops I followed her she's calling the cops he follows her too after she tells her side he tells his side what she did he said she said the cops just hang up on him so I you know what am I gonna do this wasn't the kind of time where you could like redial and we didn't have cell phones in those days that was just that one phone there so I had to just keep following it. Wherever this was going to lead, I had to keep going. That's what I did that night. Um, and, and, to, and it's important for people who are listening to realize that this was a time where even the police were called. That didn't mean that someone would be taken away, even if there had been that kind of violence and evidence of that kind of violence. It was sort of assumed that, you know, they're just crazy people. This yeah. goes on all the time. And some people do have a history of it, as we all know. And all the people who are sitting out there who've been through a relationship like this, you know that when you call the police, if they've been to your house one, two, three times, they get tired of coming back, you know, if nothing ever changes. 
I understand that. I have walked in the shoes of police all over the country in over eight police departments, spending night and day with them, going into people's homes, photographing what's happening, getting my releases. Everybody, yeah. even the family in that mansion in New Jersey, they all signed releases three or four times. So I always knew that getting releases was important because I was tired of these men and these you know white citadels of male power in the media saying to me, no, we can't publish these pictures because we could get into trouble you know, if you don't have a release. I never wanted to hear that from anybody. So I wanted to put the onus on them. If you're not going to publish these pictures, it's because you're scared. Because you don't want to have something challenged in your own world, white male privilege. So I made sure I got releases all the time. And I also like the idea of getting releases because then the people that I'm photographing, they know what's happening. They know I'm not just some fly-by little nut job who just happens to be there, mm-hmm. taking pictures, doing drugs with them, having sex with them. I'm not. I, I was not doing any drugs with them. I wasn't having sex with them. I was there to document. That's why I'm always there. In those days, th- those were really crazy times. Nobody ever talked about domestic violence. This is We're talking about 1982. Nobody talked about it. There was nothing. There wasn't even the Farrah Fawcett movie, The Burning Bed. Mm -hmm. There was nothing. And uh, even when I would try to get stories published, the magazine people would get freaked out, but they would say, no, 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 we, we can't do this. We don't know how to make sense of it. I had a third of my book done by 1985. Nobody would publish it. Not until I got the W. Eugene Smith. The way that I got that grant which was very pivotal for changing my, my presence in the photography world. Because until that point, everybody thought I was some flake. Mm-hmm. They didn't even want me in agencies. I was a little too crazy for all of them, contact, all of them. But with the Eugene Smith, I had credibility. And it wasn't a lot of money. I shared the award with Letitia Battaglia, who had documented the mafia in Sicily. So at that time, it was $15,000. We shared it, and that was great. And she stayed at my house in New York when she came, and we became the best friends, and I love that woman. That's more than money to me. I don't give a damn. My 7500 bucks went like that. Hers lasted in Sicily and Palermo. I might have had to pay for airfares, hotels, you know, renting cars, film, developing. That went really fast. But it was the credibility that was the power for me. Because then all of a sudden, Life magazine wanted to run a story with pictures that I had already shown them that they didn't have the guts to publish. Mm-hmm. The Philadelphia Inquirer, they wanted to run it. But I would say to all of them, no. You can't have any of these pictures that I've already taken. If you want to run a story on domestic violence, you have to trust me, invest in me, let me go where I know I need to be, and I'll do a new story for you. Smart move. So that was how I kept expanding this archive over the 80s, just photographing every year, three months, going out there, making these wussy magazines pay for it. (laughs) That's awesome. So as you as you started exploring all these different people's lives, how did your understanding of abuse 
change? Because as you said, you had no idea about its existence or its prevalence at all, or even the dynamic of men and women and how they may abuse each other. Mm-hmm. How did that sort of evolve for you as you had entree to so many different people's lives? Well, I had to educate myself. That was really important. So I had to start reading all the great books, you know, um, by the women, women and male violence by Susan Schechter and Jones, who wrote Women Who Kill. Lenore Walker, who'd written the Battered Woman's Bible book, you know, The Battered Women. I would go around, I'd made my pilgrimages to meet these incredible women, spend time with them, photograph the women in the shelters um, in the towns where these women were so I could bounce back and forth and get a better understanding. Well, how come these women don't leave? How come they protect the men when the police show up at the door? Um, I I needed to understand it better, too. Um, And then just by being with the women in their lives, I started to understand how confusing it was because for so many women... They, you know, they are really strong. They don't think of themselves as battered women. They think they can handle anything. And they love these men, especially if they've had children or if they have a really good sex life with them. Because it's not so easy for every woman to find a man that they're really turned on to. A man who, you know, flips that switch in their heart and their mind and their soul that they want to dedicate. I mean... Young women, especially in their 20s, they want to dedicate themselves to a man that has promise. They don't care if he's been in prison, if he's raped a woman or beaten a woman. They think they can change him through the power of love. Mm-hmm. So I started to understand that aspect of it, too. I, am, I have never been like totally, it's all about the patriarchy. I know it's about the patriarchy, but I don't put it all on the patriarchy. You know, the matriarchy also has some has some responsibility with all of this. Like, how do we hold men accountable? Why do we keep giving them all these chances? Mm-hmm. Especially when they we see that they've abused the children, whether beating them or sexually mm-hmm. abusing them. Why make excuses for any man who does that? So, I really have, you know, I've I've learn the, 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 to understand a woman's position through, through the political manifestos, the books that have been written through the years. But at the same time, I think how I, I am as a woman and as a human being is that I think I f- feel very strongly that it's up to us individually how we're going to show up in the world. And I may have it a lot better. I know I have it a lot better because I was not sexually abused as a child. And I did not grow up seeing my father beating my mother. Nobody, you know, we got spankings. I probably got more spankings than my brothers because I was the older and I was the more of the, you know, the aggressive one and rebellious. But... I didn't have my voice taken away from me or beaten out of me. And so I understand that it may be harder for people who've gone through that as children to find their voice right away. But I have also seen so many 
young children that I've photographed and living with the enemy. I've photographed them when they were children, when they were living in shelters, when their mothers were there because they had been so horrifically beaten. I've followed these children after they write to me when they're adults and they're mad at me for putting them in the book and they say, my mother stayed with that abuser for 20 years. You never knew that. You never talked to me as a child. Well, then I'll go right out there and meet with that young woman and then I'll tell her story and then we'll meet her mother again. You know, like I just keep going deeper and deeper into the to the blood and guts of every person's story. Yeah. And it's... It's those things. It's I don't like political correctness. I'm not about that at all. I I actually despise political correctness. Um, you know, like a product of the 60s, which means you know, Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, those guys are all my heroes. And so I think, you know, in the end that it's everybody has to show up and really try to figure out as they get older what's right and what's wrong. And we all know that abusing children is wrong. And we all know that anybody who does that, whether it's a a mother or a father or an uncle or a sister, they have to be stopped and put away, right away, dealt with. And there are plenty of good people out there. I meet a lot of good people. So, You know, speaking of the the, the children, one of the the photographs that you're famous for is uh, of a scene in which cops are arresting I think it's stepfather after he was abusing his Oh, that's mother. his real father. That's his real father. Okay. That's his real father. All that's right. a real. That's a really tight family. They're yeah. still together. Yeah, the boy is sort of pointing his finger at his father and saying, you know, how angry he is. At I him hate you for mother. hitting my mother. I hate and you. And you had an opportunity to interview him years afterwards as an adult. Well, I tracked him down. Yeah. I tracked him down. I left notes at his door. You know, I mean, I wanted to... After the the girl who was... Diamond, right? Diamond, Diamond, yeah. And his mother was very angry. She was trying to sue me every 10 years, you know, because she hated this picture. She said it made her life hell. But she signed a release. The police, you know, the police, I travel with the cops and I promise them no picture will ever be published unless the people sign a release. So she signed a release, but then she was sorry for it. But that picture has help so many children to realize that they have a voice that they have a right to say I hate you and you know the husband and wife been back together like two or three weeks I had to go back because the mother wouldn't sign the release at first so I actually went back to Minneapolis and went to the house and talked to them the father had gone back he's a beautiful man that man you know and that's how photographs can lie unless you keep going deeper and deeper into their lives like the father explained to me what happened. He had been abusive 10 years before. He had been an alcoholic. And he changed. He went into AA. He wasn't doing the drugs. He's, you know, plays the horn or the trumpet. He's a jazz musician, very sweet, gentle guy. Diamond loves both of his parents. He loves his mother, too. She's a powerful woman. But the mother was having a hard time, and she had started doing things in that house with some drugs that the father wasn't happy with, nobody was happy. She was in a bad space in her life. That's why the father went crazy. And the father explained that to me in the police car. I went to the station with him and asked him, why did you do this? Because he seemed like such a quiet, gentle guy. I was freaking out that all the police were jumping on him. I understood in that moment, too, why so many women of color will, like, 
beat the police off of their husbands, you know, or boyfriends, because they don't want the cops to come in there and beat up the their husband. They just want the man to stop being abusive. In that situation, the wife wasn't even calling the cops. It was Diamond who called the cops. It was Diamond who had to put an end to it, a little eight-year-old boy. So... So I was very impressed with that child, as all the police were too. They, they'd never heard anybody stand up for the mother like that. Nobody does that, you know. I wish she had been more proud of her son. She gave him a, a hard time. She's given him hell all these years for calling the cops, probably because a photographer was there. Mm. And there were, a photographer recorded it for posterity. And once that, that picture went viral... Everybody knows that picture represents the truth of what a child feels inside, inside their, their, their heart of hearts, where they're just wishing their parents could get along. You know, but he was so brave the way he said, don't come back to this house, but he loves his dad. You know, his dad's, and I, I so when I, I found him 20 years later, spent time with them, saw what he was doing with his life, what a good man he became, not abusive. He's he's a gentle-hearted man, you know. He's a hairdresser, really good hairdresser. Hard for him to get breaks. He's gay. He's often with men who are, are not as kind with him, but he's finding his way. He doesn't put up with it either. You know, he's he's a beautiful man. And I wanted to show that because a lot of people would say, oh, he probably grew up to be an abuser and this yeah. and that. And I, don't, I don't want people to have those those misconceptions or to think that they can look, figure out what the final picture is going to be of any human being. Because I see a lot of children who grew up in those homes who don't become abusers. So I wanted to break yeah. that myth. It's too easy to say, oh, that's why they become abusers. And Banked, the original guy, did not grow up in a violent home. Nobody was beating on him. He didn't see his father doing that. To to be the man who wants to control everybody, to be an abuser on multiple levels, Banked came to that through his own hubris, mm -hmm. through his own conceit and arrogance as a man. You know, that's that's where it comes from for me. It doesn't come just from the drugs or too much drink. You know, I don't I don't buy it. You've we've witnessed so much, you know, abuse between, you know, men and women who are married or have relationships or share children. From your perspective, because you I think you have a unique perspective in the fact that you've had purview into so many people's lives. But when you have you seen people who have been in that dynamic who have been able to change, or do you find that the only good thing to do is for people to be completely separated from their abuser? Uh, I, I haven't found people who are really able to change when they stay with the abuser, no. And I've also followed men in prison who were in there for domestic violence. This was in actually um, uh, not Sing Sing, but what's the other one in San Francisco, the big prison? Um, San Quentin. San Quentin. San Quentin, yeah. So, so I went through the programs with these men, and what I saw for a lot of from for a lot of men, and even in the programs for the batters that are held, the long term programs. I don't really. I don't believe in the short term, like three, four months. I think those are a lot of yeah. nonsense. But 
the ones where men are really obligated to be there for at least three years, or in the prisons where they're getting it every day, I mean, they, they are learning. They are absolutely learning how to, where this anger comes from, how to, how to tap into it, how to learn how that, okay, when this happens, they need to remove themselves, go out and maybe definitely be by themselves for a while, calm down, be a lot more responsible, hold themselves accountable, stop blaming the woman, stop blaming everybody for what you are feeling right now. So I've seen the men make that transition, but the problem is was when they go back home, and if the wife hasn't been in a program for herself too, after she's been living with an abuser for a long period, she's, you know, a lot of times she's responding because she knows she's going to get a rise from him. If she does, does the things that she knows will get a rise from him, then they have that dance that follows. And, you know, that can be terrifying and fulfilling for both the man and the female. So what a lot of the men in these groups will say is that I try not to go there, but she keeps coming at me. And so then what they have to learn is that they have to separate from her. They can't be with her because it is going to bring them down. And they're going to go back to prison. They're going to lose their scholarship. They're going to lose their job. And that's good for men to know. But, you know, when I would talk to the women's movement, the, the activists about this, they would say, no, 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 it's not like that, Donna. Women are not crazy. They don't need to go to therapy. They don't need that. And I would always say, no, you, I don't agree with you because I know for a lot of women, they want to make it work with the man. They want their children to have a father. You know, they, they have some bad issues themselves because for a lot of women, if you, if you start to beat me and you're like doing the kind of, I'm going to, I know myself, I'm going to leave you or I'm going to kill you. If I find out you're touching my child, I will kill you. Mm-hmm. I identify with the women in prison who kill their abusers because they know they're not going to get away from him. He's threatening them. He's stalked them before. He's hunted them down. Nobody on the outsides know. The police even tell the woman, we can't stop him until he tries to kill you. What's a woman to do? You know, I, I identify the, with those women who know that they're at the end. This is this guy's not going to stop no matter what. But for the women who think that they can go back and keep being in a relationship with a man like this and and who's done those kinds of things with them that they don't need therapy and they don't need to get those same tools that the man need to get how to deal with issues of violence and anger and control and submission, complete submission, then nothing's going to change. And if you love somebody, I really believe you have to change. Man, woman, whatever. The women that I've met through the work I've been doing with I Am Unbeatable met this incredible woman out in California in San Francisco, an older woman who, she's about my age. She has five grandchildren. She has five beautiful daughters. Her husband was a doctor. They lived in Virginia. She was married to, he was beautiful. He was the love of her life. When he started, like, throwing her out of the house naked, you know, locking her outside, degrading her, saying horrible, insulting things to her. She knew she was being abused. She got in touch with her dad and said, Dad, I've, I've got to leave him. 
I've got to take my daughters. I don't want my daughters to grow up seeing their mother treated like this. This isn't me, what I'm living with. And he said, okay, I'll come and take you. And I'll take you away. You want to go to California? I'll take you there. But only one time. You can never go back to him. If you do, I will not help you again. That's tough love. I see that as tough love. And I really believe that we all need to understand that. We can't keep going back to something that is broken. We're not going to save him. Nobody can save him. You can only save yourself yeah. and your children. And, you know, women have to be very aware of that. That is our responsibility. When we create life in our bodies, you know, wonderful. Thank you for this sperm. Thank you for helping us make this beautiful baby. But if you don't respect me, if you're raping me, if you're beating me, if my children have to watch that, then honey, you better get out of that relationship. Yeah. Like, there's just no way you can let him get away with that. And you know what? If he can't have you, he's going to go out and find some other woman. Okay. And he's going to say bad things about you. He's going to put you down. He's going to make it seem like you're the one who made him into that kind of a monster. And that naive woman is going to believe it. And she's not going to go and talk to the ex because she's going to believe all the bullshit that he's telling her about her. And then she's going to get into something even worse. Mm -hmm. That's the cycle. That's the other cycle that people don't talk about. Well, one of the more, more gratifying things about the work that you've done, even though you've explored some very dark themes and ideas, is is the idea that you've been able to help a lot of people, that a lot of legislation was passed, influenced a lot by people seeing the evidence of, of this in, in photographs, as well as just people individually finding and, uh, and accepting help. That must be one of the most gratifying things that, that, that you must experience when you think about your career. Yeah. Yeah. You're very right. I mean, absolutely. One of the one of the things that thrilled me the most one day when I was meeting these women in a shelter um, out in this was near Missoula, and um, and a woman was saying to a young woman was saying, you know, my mother came home with this book. She was being she was being beaten, and I was just a little girl, and she came home with this book. You know, living with the enemy. My uh, my dad was able to take me out. Um, they were separated, they were divorced, but he would come and take me out for the day. That was their deal. But he would never admit that he was an abuser. He would never talk about it. He would not discuss it. He wanted to have his own relationship with me. But one day I saw this book that you'd written. It was in my mom's possession. And so I brought it home on the day that he was picking me up. And he came into the house, into the kitchen, and he saw, living with the enemy, on the table, the woman with the two black eyes looking so intense. And he, she said, he looked at that book, and he looked in my eyes, and he turned around, and he walked out the door, and he never came back. Wow. And she said, thank you, because I didn't want to go home with him all the time. I couldn't forget those memories of what I'd seen him doing to my mother how he treated me but the courts were making me spend time with him mm -hmm. the courts don't give a damn and I know that the courts are not on women and children's side and I will fight the courts with every drop of blood I have in my body till the day I die I don't really trust the courts I don't really trust prosecutors I don't really trust judges even though 
The New York Supreme Court judges have given me a big award a few years ago and said for my work on gender fairness. That's okay, but I'll stand in front of them when I give my presentation and tell them, you guys are the problem for so many women because you keep being sympathetic to these men and giving them another chance and not listening to the woman when she says what she's going through and she's crying and she's scared and she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know how to tell the story. You don't even give her a chance. You can't be bothered. So I, I have a hard time with the courts. Tell me about the workshop that you're conducting here that you have. Uh... Uh, this is how I kind of keep saying. Okay. And sort of like plant the seeds, that I, you know, like Johnny Appleseed, you know, planting the seeds of sort of, you know, f- photographic fun and defiance and going deeper, like penetrating into people's lives. And it's all about sex like sex but not sex it's not just sex it's about uninhibited behavior people singing you know out of nowhere showing their bodies people on the beach we're here in Santa Monica or Venice Beach people are very uninhibited here this will be the third erotic eye workshop that I've done with Tomeo Cole who's my partner with this he's a great photographer from Mallorca and he was my student back in 2005 in Barcelona. He followed me to New York City, would come and live with me every year or two. We became friends. Every workshop I've ever done, he's been there. Now we do these workshops, the erotica workshops together. So we, you know, we've, we've, we've done workshops in two different countries where it was very difficult to organize the way I want to organize this kind of a workshop because it is so complicated with the layers of people's personal lives, with their sexuality, with their depressions, with their problems in their relationships. I want to teach these photographers how to do all this stuff that I've been doing for 35 years. Mm. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I could die today walking out in the street. Any of us can die at any minute. But I want to make sure that there are enough photographers out there that understand not only is it like cool to go into people's lives and really photograph what's happening, it's a responsibility of a photographer. If they want to take some nice pictures and look at like what their life is just through a you know fifteen minute half half an hour session, that's not enough to just take some nice pictures. You got to go deeper, and that's what I keep telling them go deeper, get into their lives. Yeah, nice. Like we have this one photographer here who's photographing. She's an older woman, this Monica. I love how she goes so bravely into people's lives. But now, with one of her subjects, she's she's understanding that this woman who was so beautiful and so open in the beginning, she has a lot of problems. She has depression. She is bipolar. Her children are not of help to her. She's independent. She's a goddesses woman. I want women, our subjects, for this workshop here in America because I can't do this in other countries. I really can't do it in Spain or Italy or Germany or China because I can't speak the language so well. But I can do it here in America. And I have friends all over America. So all of my friends from the transgender communities, from the swinger communities, from just being here, 
they're, they're all helping us to find powerful subjects, females who are so powerful and who've gone through a lot of issues, you know, to become the women that they are today. And so, so I want my photographers like Monica to accept the bad with the good, with the beauty, with mm-hmm. how generous her subject has been with her, Diane. So generous. But because she's depressed and having problems, you can't just say, well, that's too much for me. I don't right. want to know about yeah. that. No, no, no. And it's not about, you're not going to ever be able to heal her, but you can be with her. The importance is for all of these photographers to just get over their bourgeois attitudes, their pretensions about it all, their obsession with trying to take ah the most whatever picture. No, be with the people. You know, photographing them if they're if they're dressed or undressed, if they're posing or not posing, this is all fine, but it's still on the surface. These photographers, all the photographers in my workshops, have to go deeper. If they aren't, I shake them. I bite their necks open. They know it. They're all a little afraid of me. Because I'll do this even with a photo editor. I'll do this with anybody. If I feel someone is giving me or my work or my subjects a bad rap, I will destroy them. I will really seriously do everything to destroy them. (laughs) Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anybody, someone mm-hmm. you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, that's not a problem for me to answer. The photographer that I've known for a very long time, um, as a friend, as a colleague that I respect enormously, but I never really got to know. I mean, he, he would come to visit me when I would go to certain places and we would talk. He was younger than me. And, um, and also, he's a you know, family man. He's got children. He's got a life. He's a busy, hardworking photographer. Um, we never had a chance to do anything together. But I invited him to this workshop to be the mentor and I've always had women in the past I had Karen Kuhn Mm -hmm. from New Mexico she's great I had Jane Evelyn Atwood came to Germany great but now I have Mark Peterson and Mark has done a book that I think is the bravest book the the most provocative pictures of the political players in America today and he's nailed them he's just fucking nailed him to a board and I love him for what he's done with this book I think this book is the ultimate statement about how screwed up America is and who are the Trump heads and who are the Clinton heads and you know there's just so much trashy thinking out there with everybody they're, they're really Bernie was great Bernie didn't have a chance you know he's, this was a real den of thieves you know this whole political arena that has been created where we found ourselves throughout 2016 and Mark exposed the whole thing I look forward to seeing that he's he's the one I would give to you on a silver platter I'll be glad to talk with him Donna thank you so much it was a real pleasure and an honor to have a chance to sit down and talk with you Thank Thank you. you thank you
Thanks for listening, and thanks to Donna for joining us on The Candid Frame. You can check out her work by visiting DonnaFerrato.com. Thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes Store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here on TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the Candid Frame website or in the show notes. Thanks to all who have recently contributed to the show, including Brian Jameson. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great conversations we presented here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame.